0: Hey good morning. How we doing? Um, do me a favor. Um, I'm not going to have the ushers come forward with Bibles this morning. We are continuing our study from Exodus twenty that we've been in all fall, looking at the Ten Commandments and the idea of timeless truths for truthless times. But as we approach the scripture this morning, I got to tell you, it's a little uh, bit of a relief. We're through the first five commandments. We're starting the second half. And in the first five commandments, um, they're wordy. Some of them are confusing. It's, people argue on how to apply them. This morning, we get to the sixth command. It's pretty straightforward. It's just four words. You shall not murder. King James, thou shalt not kill. Hebrew, two words, tir shadak. <sighs> Finally, an easy one. No controversy here it's pretty straightforward just four words like i don't know what we're going to do with the next 40 minutes <laughs> and yet those two hebrew words those four english words divide our culture when you consider should we go to war what how do we respond when russia invades ukraine do we help do we send troops is is it a just war? Is is there such a thing as a just war? What what about the verdict the jury handed down last week with the Florida shooter in the Parkland schools? That, that that's a young man who entered a school armed with intent and shot and killed 14 students, 17 total counting teachers, and yet at sentencing he isn't giving the death penalty. If the death penalty isn't applied in that situation, when could it be? When when would it be? When should it be applied? What about abortion? What about a woman's right to choose? When does life begin? And by the way, on all these issues, who gets to decide? The government? Wh- which government? Is it a federal decision? Is it a state decision? Do the judges decide? Do the voters decide? Does the individual decide? So nice to not have a controversial command. Before we jump into this cultural abyss, I think we have to be very careful right at the start of this message to make sure that as we look at these issues, and we're going to look at all of those issues, we make sure that we're building off a good, sound foundation that will hold that will stand the test of time. And when, and when I say that, here's what I mean. We have to start when we consider these issues with this question, what does God's word say? What does God's word say as it relates to these topics? Before we jump into the text, I just wanna give it some context. Would you do me a favor, just kinda of in your mind, I'm gonna ask this question. Uh, think of a famous murderer who comes to mind. Louder, I can't hear. Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, because Jeffrey Dahmer is the subject of Netflix and Prime documentaries like a lot. Now, he's a current craze. I don't understand it. One of my friends, I was like, I don't think I want to watch that thing. I think even the previews are creepy. He's like, no, no, no. I watched the whole thing. I binge watched it last weekend. My weekend with Jeffy, he called it. That's messed up. <laughs> okay, so, so Dahmer, another name come to mind. Bonnie and Clyde. Okay, we're going back some time. Give me another name. I heard John Wayne Gacy. Okay, I'm a Chicago boy. That one resonates from home. He was a guy who would dress up as a clown, attract little kids, and then bury them in his basement. That all took place like 10 minutes from where I was growing up. A lot of fun. Chicago boy, I'm also thinking Capone. I heard Hitler. Okay, you guys have shouted out a lot of names. Can I give you three more to consider? How about this one? Moses. It's interesting. Exodus 2 verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Listen to verse 12. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Oh, by the way, that's murder with intent. He looked both ways first. Here's another name, David. Second Samuel 11:15. in a letter David wrote, set Uriah, now Uriah is a soldier, He's off in battle, and while he's in battle, David is sleeping with his wife. So as he goes back to battle, David writes this letter to his commander. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Cold-blooded murder intent. How about Paul? In Galatians one? Thirteen, it says, Paul writing about his his past. He says, "For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it." Acts seven mentions that when Stephen was stoned, the first martyr mentioned in the book of Acts, Paul was there. Why do I mention these three names at the start of this message? Because there's something really important when you see these new names or these names. These make the top ten list of anybody's list of Bible characters, all of them murderers. And yet God chose to use them mightily after they had committed the crime. And what I want you to see by saying that is this. How wonderful is it that there's forgiveness at the foot of the cross? And I want to start with this and set the temperature of this message by saying We cannot outrun the grace of God no matter what you've done. And I want to set that tone at the beginning because I think by the time that I'm done, there are going to be many people in this room who maybe walked in here saying, do not murder. That one at least I got, check. Maybe not so. I think more of us are guilty of violating the sixth command than we might care to admit. The big idea this morning is simply this. Paul got it, he writes in Romans 5 verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What what he's saying here is the law didn't cause us to sin. The law, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments that we're studying made us very aware that the things that we were doing were sin. The law was never meant to save, it was to point us to a Savior. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's our big idea right there. Where sin increases, grace abounds. We're going to start by looking at what God's word says. We're going to break down these two Hebrew words, tir, zadok, and make sure that we understand what the intent of the original author was, God, when he gave this command. It's interesting, in Hebrew, there are eight different words that are used for killing. The two words used in the sixth command, you shall not murder, are never used in relation to killing animals. And I want to talk to you, as we go through this message, I want to be constantly talking to you about foundations and bad foundations. Because when we build on a bad foundation, it will often lead us to some really dark and illogical conclusions. In 2012, a prominent group of scientists published what was called the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness. And it declared that humans are not unique from animals in any way that matters. Ingrid Newkirk, the PETA founder, is quoted as saying this, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, a dog is a boy. Six million Jews died in concentration camps, but six billion broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. Okay, how, how do we get there? Well, here's how we get there. It's a different foundation than God's word. It's based off of naturalism. It's based off of evolution. It's based off the idea that we are all here by random chance and there's no real difference between the animals and us. And by the way, for me to say that there is a difference between the animals and us, that makes me a speciist. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The Bible declares that all humans are image bearers of God. So if it bothers your conscience, if you're a vegan, if it offends you that throughout our state, all fall, there's going to be people in the woods thwacking Bambi with arrows and ammo, you're welcome to hold that viewpoint the Sixth Command is not your proof text. It's not referring to animals. Second thing, it's not referring to war or the military. All war is horrible. Author Stephen Carter, he wrote a book called Rights of Religion" or The Wrongs and Rights of Religion in Politics. He says this. He says, war is horrible and should be fought rarely and only to avoid greater horrors. The purpose of an army is not to kill people. It's to protect the citizens of the country. And there are times where going to war is necessary and just. When it's waged by a legitimate government, when it's for a worthy cause, when it's against soldiers, not civilians, when all other means of restitution and resolution have failed. And if you wish for a conscious sake to object to a specific war, that you're right. Just don't use this verse as your proof text. It's not talking about war. And sadly, many men from Vietnam to Afghanistan have returned to our country to be met with protests, and there's this verse on the placards that the protesters are holding, you shall not murder. And guilt and shame has been imposed on our soldiers when what they were actually doing was fighting for our freedom to protect us. It's not talking about war. Here's a third thing. It's not talking about the death penalty. Those two words, tears, zadok, are never used in reference to the death penalty. If you're against the death penalty, the sixth command is not your go to verse. And it's interesting. Friday night, I was just trying to forget about sermon prep. And it, Chris and I, we turned like a 48 hours or prime time. I was barely paying attention. And uh, all of a sudden, I hear this guy go, Well, I'm against the death penalty because the Bible says you shall not murder. Bam, I'm right back into sermon prep mode again. The very thing I was trying to avoid. It's interesting, Genesis 9-6 says this. And by the way, this is before the Ten Commandments. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay, so if you kill somebody, your blood will also be required. Death penalty instituted in the Old Testament. Do you see in the verse, why does God do that? For God made man in his own image. Killing an image-bearer is not something that is taken lightly. And I want to be very careful when we look at this theologically, when we discuss, okay, what does it mean you shall not murder? Let me give you this definition. The unjust taking of a legally innocent life. The unjust taking of, an inno- of a legally innocent life. Here's a fourth thing that the sixth command does not address. Tears of Zadok is never used to describe self-defense. To protect yourself or your family from an intruder intent on harm, it's not murder, it's not covered by the sixth command. Okay, a theology on what it does mean, what the sixth command was trying to teach. Here's the first thing. Murder is not just an action, it's an attitude. Murder is not just action, it's attitude. Throughout the um, Ten Commandments, we miss the depth of their meaning if we only focus on the action. There's a principle in studying the Ten Commandments. It's called the inside-out principle. It's not just talking about the things that we do, but it's talking about the attitudes and the feelings and our hearts that drive our actions. Let me give you an example, and to do it, I'm going to go back to the foundations, to Genesis, to Genesis 4, to the first murder recorded in Scripture. In Genesis 4, we read this, it says, "'The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, "'but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. "'So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell.'" So what just happened is two brothers, Cain and Abel, they bring offerings before God. Abel's is accepted, Cain's is rejected. And in response to that, the text is clear. Cain is angry, he's mad, and he's depressed. His countenance fell. The Lord comes to Cain in verse 6, and he says, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Before the action ever took place, God was pleading with Cain, There's a heart problem. You're making choices based off how you feel. You're letting your emotions rule the day. And if you don't get control of this, sin's crouching at the door. This is going to lead to some very, very bad decisions and some very, very bad places. Murder doesn't begin when you fire the gun. It begins when you entertain the idea that you wish somebody was dead. It's not just an action. It is a heart attitude. Actually, Jesus goes further. In Matthew 5, 21, verse 22, in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches that our feelings of anger and hatred are not just the precursors to sin. They themselves, those emotions, are sin. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, If you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Here's what Jesus did once again. In discussing murder, he refers to the sixth command and he says it's not just what you do, it's what you Feel in your heart, it's your attitude. So let me just clearly say what Jesus said. If you harbor hatred against a brother, if you wish they were dead, you're just as guilty of the sixth command as if you pulled the trigger. That's what he's saying. And let me give you another implication because we're going to talk about this in a minute. To hate the murderer is as grievous a sin as the murder itself. We've got to watch our heart attitudes. Commandments are not just referring to actions. There's an inside-out principle. They're always intended to focus our attention back on our hearts. Here's the second thing. Murder is not just action but attitude. Here's number two. We are all image bearers, born and unborn. You need to hear me say this. As your pastor, as an elder, you need to hear your church say this. Abortion is murder. It is the unjust taking of an innocent life. As a church, we have never wavered on this. We will never waver on this. Now, over the course of the last few years, many of you are are aware that there's been a lot of debate on how the church, how Christians should engage in politics. I've often said from this pulpit frustration is born out of unmet expectations many at our church have been frustrated many have left our church believing that we were cowards because we didn't speak into the political issues of the day they believed our motives were that we were scared that we would see people leave that we would see giving dwindle that we would lose our tax-exempt status many reasons given for our silence as elders we chose to teach submission and model submission Why? Because it's biblical. Because it's what the Bible teaches. Because it's what Jesus modeled. He did not engage in the political disputes of his day. He refused to be the insurrectionist that the people wanted him to be. The early church did not concern themselves with the political injustices of the Roman Empire. A biblical foundation drove our decision and our hopes and our trust can never be founded in politics it cannot be where our hope resides but what we're talking about this morning it's not political it's theological it's moral it's foundational abortion is built off a or the legalizing of abortion is built off a really faulty foundation let's talk a minute about how we got there if you think about our country in the 30s we were in a period of depression coming out of that uh, after a first world war in the 1917 19 that era we had the roaring 20s we had the depression of the 30s we went right back into war in the 40s and coming out of that war we finally had that golden area era which was the 50s you guys all remember Mayberry right at least Rascal Flatts sang a song some of you would remember Everybody, move to the suburbs. Everybody, have a good job. We're all going to have our own house, picket fence, 2.4 kids, a dog, go to church. Everything's going to be wonderful. That's the 50s. The problem was the kids of the parents who set their dreams and their hopes and their satisfaction on those things witnessed from the inside of those very homes with the white picket fences that the things of this world will never satisfy And so though things looked good on the outside in the 50s, what followed it was the 60s, a decade of absolute revolution. Sleep with whoever you want, a sexual revolution. Intake and ingest whatever you want. And at the end of the 60s, in that period of revolution, guess what happens? What are the unintended consequences when you're sleeping with anyone you want while you're lit? A bunch of unwanted pregnancies. So in 1973, a court decision is handed down, Roe versus Wade, which legalizes abortion. And what's unleashed because of that ruling is a holocaust like the world has never seen. For nearly the past 50 years, I'm talking U.S. statistics alone, our country, has estimated there have been 64 million abortions. It's a big number. Let me break that down for you. It's 2.5 every minute of every day, of every month, of every year. That's an abortion every 24 seconds in our country as a result of Roe versus Wade. As I look at the clock we're approaching in this service, that would be 90 abortions in our country. 64 million abortions, almost all of them in the name of convenience rather than medical emergency This is not medicine, it's murder. The biblical foundation for what I'm saying, Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. This is David writing. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, speaking to God, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Here's what he says. Back when I was in my mother's womb, you were knitting me. Now, I'm not a knitter, that might surprise you. I've never knitted anything in my life. I've watched my wife, she sometimes knits things for the grandkids. And here's what I know, she just doesn't start taking random yarn and tuck and loop or whatever you do. (laughs) She's following a pattern, she's picked the colors, she's chosen the yarn, she has an end product in mind. And David, in this verse, please note how he's referring to himself in the womb. I, me, my, personal pronouns. He's not referring to some massive tissue that one day later will become him. He's referring to him, his being. Goes on and says in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. Get this, the days that were formed for me as yet when there were none of them. He's saying, before I was even born, God knew my days. It's not talking about physical tissue. It's talking about a life. It's talking about a person. It's talking about an individual. David is making it clear that in his mother's womb, it was him. Some ask, at what point in the child's development are we really talking about a person, a separate individual? Well, David writes in Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. What David is saying here is your very nature, your sin nature is in the womb. It's already a part of you before you were born. And parents, you know this. We don't have to spend a lot of time with our young kids and our toddlers teaching them to be shady. They come by that completely naturally. No, 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 no. It's just environment. No, it's not. It's in the womb. David's declaring that. So what he's saying is more than physically, our nature is given to us in the womb. He goes on and says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. His argument is our moral, spiritual makeup begins and is present at conception. In sin did my mother conceive me. John Calvin said it this way, The fetus, although enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. How how, how did he get there? How did he, like, draw that conclusion? Like, this guy lived hundreds of years ago. There wasn't the medicine to prove that. He got there from God's word. God's word, our foundation, clearly argues that life begins at conception. But what about my body, my choice? Anybody heard that? It's a bad foundation. And I'm just going to say this. it doesn't just defend me because I'm a Christian man, it defends me because I'm a logical man. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Let me explain it theologically. Not only have we just looked at the fact that life, soul, spirit, physical is developed, it's knitted together by God before we are born. His followers of Jesus Christ, we also read in 1 Corinthians 6:19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of a holy spirit within you? Whom you have from God you are not your own but you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body our choice as followers of Jesus Christ is not that we get to do whatever we want that's sending off alarms if you didn't know that foundationally in God's Word we've been bought with a price it is theologically clear the idea that it's my body my choice is medically absurd Science has proven that the baby is in the body of the mother. It is not her body. It is inside of her. It is not her. And we have the advantage of 50 years of science since the decision of Roe versus Wade was handed down. Science has proven that by eight weeks, all of the child's organs are present. The baby's heart is pumping. It's eight weeks. His or her liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are functioning The baby's brain is functioning, possibly dreaming. I have no idea what an eight-week-old has to dream about, but that's what science says. It's interesting. By eight weeks, the baby has a unique fingerprint. The child has its own blood. Not mom's blood, not dad's blood, its own blood. The child will respond to sound. The baby sucks its thumb. The baby recoils from pain. Everyone in this room, we had a beginning. There, there was a moment um, where a sperm collided with an egg and you began. From that moment, and by the way, I don't want to get really deeply into the reproductive process of human beings. If you have questions on that, there'll be elders up front after the service. Go there, okay? <laughs> but, but we all had a beginning. And from the moment that first cell is formed, it has its own unique DNA. Not dad's, not mom's, its own unique DNA. To argue my body, my choice, when science is clearly proven that it's not your body, it's logically absurd. It's a bad foundation. Yeah, but if the fetus can't live apart from me, so it's up to me. If it's dependent on me, it's my choice. Well, let's develop that one. The unborn child can't survive without its parents. The newborn child cannot survive without its parents. A two-year-old cannot survive without its parents. A five-year-old cannot survive without its parents. Um disabled children cannot survive without their parents the elderly sometimes cannot survive without their parents do you really want to go down this line of logic what about the 26 year old guy playing video games in your basement if we're following this logic that guy better be sleeping with one eye open it's not about dependency it's a separate life it's medically absurd and legally it is inconsistent the idea that it's a mother's body, so therefore she can do whatever she wants, isn't true in many areas of society. The government tells us all the time what we can and cannot do with our bodies, often to protect innocent life. If, if I leave this place and I go get myself drunk, and I jump behind the wheel of a car, and I drive, or by the way, if I'm texting while I'm driving, and I run a red light, I slam into a car in an intersection, and the driver of that other car is a pregnant woman carrying a baby, and that baby dies, what happens to me? I'm charged with what? Manslaughter. Murder. We've lost our minds. There's many things I'm not allowed to do with my body for the protection of innocent people. I am not allowed to sell my body for sex, obviously. I'm not allowed to buy somebody else's body for sex. Why? Because it endangers innocent lives. Yet this afternoon, if you're watching football, nearly every commercial on TV will argue that we should legalize abortion in the state of Michigan. Saw this commercial. Here was the argument. If, if, If abortion is outlawed, doctors and nurses will go to jail. I can't let doctors and nurses go to jail. If we don't legalize abortion, doctors and nurses will go to jail. Or, or, can I suggest another alternative? Or, they obey the law. They follow the science. They have respect for the sanctity of human life. Biden, President Biden on Tuesday speaking of the upcoming elections, said that there's a turn in Congress as a result of the elections. If he's given the opportunity after the elections, he said, and I quote, the first bill I will send to Congress will be to codify Roe versus Wade. He went on to say that abortion is the fundamental right of women. Not a fundamental right. The fundamental right of women. And yet this afternoon, if I go up to our property in Biteley. On our property, we have an eagle's nest. And if I climb the tree that has the eagle's nest and I reach into that nest and touch an egg, legally that's called molesting an eagle's egg, what happens to me? Oh, I get fined. I could possibly go to jail. And yet, the vast majority of 64 million abortions over nearly the last 50 years have been for convenience, not medical reasons. We've lost our minds. So, what do we do with um, rape and incest? But what about in cases of rape and incest? Like, like, like how are we going to handle that? And by the way, y'all just went ooh because that's hard. Because what happens is it immediately evokes your emotions and your feelings because rape or incest are horrific crimes. With devastating consequences. All sin leads to suffering. Rape and incest have devastating consequences. If you want to apply the death penalty to the criminal, that's fine. But if our foundation is that life is created by God, that the unborn is a life that God is working on in the womb, if it's separate from the mom, as horrific as the crime is, we cannot allow the innocent, the unjust killing of an innocent or taking of an innocent life to be allowed even in the most horrific of circumstances. These are difficult issues. We've got to follow a biblical logic. If the unborn child is a life, a person Created in the image of God, abortion cannot be an option even in the case of rape and incest. So where do we go with all this? Sadly, we must face the reality that though the sixth command looks very easy on its surface, if we begin to explore its implications, many more of us are guilty of violating the sixth command than we might want to realize. Some of us by deed some of us by thought, some of us simply by indifference. It's interesting. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, Jesus tells a parable that is meant to shock and offend. A man is beaten. He lay dying in the street. Three people walk past this man, a priest, a Levite, and a a foreigner, a Samaritan. The priest passes by. He doesn't want to engage the Levite passes by. He doesn't want to engage. The Samaritan comes and cares for the man. Jesus asked this, Luke ten thirty six which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Sometimes all it takes to break the sixth commandment is to do nothing at all. Now, again, don't forget where we started here. The big idea this morning is this, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. When sin sin increases, grace abounds. When we sin, when we realize that we're in violation of the sixth command or any of the other commands, our natural tendency is to recoil because of guilt and shame. And I don't know all the stories in this room. If abortion is in your past, whether you had an abortion, whether you encouraged someone else to have an abortion, whether you paid for an abortion... If in your heart you have (laughs) hatred that you refuse to deal with, ill intent for somebody else, the Bible's clear on these things. That is murder. And it's also clear on something else, that in spite of your sin, when you choose to repent, there's grace and forgiveness found at the foot of the cross. Don't recoil into guilt and shame. Deal with it biblically and feel the freedom of what it means to be forgiven. For all of us, we don't have the option to do nothing in this debate or this battle in our culture. Here's what we need to do. Here's the first thing. I'm going to give you four. The first is to pray. As it relates to this issue of abortion, our culture has embraced what you can only get to by a bad foundation, an illogical argument, a seared conscience, and I would even argue demonic stuff. We have to ask God to convict those that are in power. We have to pray for those in our church who have entered the public arena. And there's many in our church that have entered the public arena. There are judges that attend this church. There are police officers. There are school teachers. There are school board teachers. There are elected officials who have entered into this very, very difficult public arena. We need to be lifting those people up in prayer. Because it takes courage to stand for the right of the unborn in today's context. Here's a second thing, vote. People tend to vote for people and platforms that serve their own self-interests. I would argue that voting for the sanctity of life is in your best interest. You know why I argue that? Because you're alive. It's always best to vote for the sanctity of life. And there are things at stake in this election that are way more important than taxes and potholes. You need to vote. If you watch the advertising on TV, Proposition 13 is described as too extreme and too confusing. It's not too confusing as if they clarify the language, it'll be okay. And it's not too extreme as if they soften the terms, it'll become palatable. What Proposition 3 is attempting to do is legalize murder. Don't miss that. Here's a third thing. Give. Be generous to those who are on the front lines of battling for the right to life, of those who are taking care of women who find themselves in extremely difficult situations, having to make extremely hard decisions. Be generous with those who are engaged in this battle. And I'll give you a fourth. Extend. I battled with this fourth one. The first, the word was originally engage. Engage. I changed it to extend because here's my problem with engage. I'm worried that if I say engage, some of you are going to go run home and post something on social media and feel like you were heroic or get into some comment debate with some pithy post. It's not love, it's not how this battle is won. And there would be some that argue, yeah, but if we don't speak in the forum public, who will? If we don't enter the debate, the debate will be lost. This isn't a battle that's won with words. It's won by action. So rather than engage, let me use this word, extend. And let me tell you what that looks like. Let me give you some ideas. Consider foster care. Caring for kids in desperate need. Consider adoption support orphanages we do that as a church consider doing it yourself open up your home invite people in be a help to single moms struggling to raise kids that maybe were not planned but still need to be loved getting involved will be messy it's not easy it comes with complications it'll wear you out it's interesting i was thinking at the end of this this year i'm getting off the elder board but for the past 11 12 years i've served with a lot of guys on the board i'm so proud of those men because without fanfare study their lives to a man over and over what you will see Caring for the least of these. Caring for the least of these. Adoption. Foster care. Taking people into their homes. Opening up their house. Letting people live with them. Over and over and over again. It's not good enough to enter a post on Facebook. That's a clanging symbol and a gong. It's not love. This issue in our culture needs to move our hearts to action. Pray, vote, give, extend. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity on this issue. And in a confused culture, we are thankful that we can run back to your word to get clear instruction. Father, give us courage. Don't let us just be hearers of the word. Let us be doers as well. It's in your name we pray.